because of the work that he's done. So uh, it's an honor and it is truly a privilege to be with you. If you haven't met me, uh, I'd love to meet you after the service today. I'm one of the pastors at Resonate. I've been a pastor for 20 years and I've been at Resonate now for about two and a half. I came in the middle of COVID, March of 21, and I was born and raised, my wife and I were born and raised in Castro Valley, and except for a short stint where we were taken, I don't know if that's the right word, into the Central Valley for uh, four years, uh, the Bay Area has been our home, and we love, we love the Bay Area, and we believe that God is wanting to do something incredible here. Now, um, many of you are aware that we, we became family uh, a few weeks ago, and, and of course, yeah, woo, yeah, um, and obviously we are, the, the, we are the people of God and we're all family, right? But now, now it's going to get more intimate. Now it's going to, like, the, the, all the stinkiness is going to start showing up, right? We're going to start kind of letting our hair down a little bit, and we're going to get to know. Some of you are like, what is going on? Well, there's this beautiful, I'll just say this, there's about to be this beautiful partnership between the movement and Resonate Church, and not for any reason other than to see the kingdom of God go forward in the Bay Area. That, that is it. That is it. And so I'm very excited about that. And I, I want to ask this question, before we get into the sermon today, I just want to ask this question, and I've asked it to a few of you already this morning. How are you doing with that? Yeah, okay, we got some woos, and I believe there's some woos, but I would imagine that there is a plethora, I love using that word, there is a plethora of emotions uh, there is probably some excitement, that there might be some nervousness, maybe some sadness, maybe just like, okay, let's go. If it means for the kingdom, let's go. Uh, I am sure that all of us are not just feeling one emotion, but maybe others. And I would say this, that one of the questions you might be asking yourself is, what are we doing this for? What is the purpose of this? And, and I as I hope that you see just from your pastors, from your leaders, that, again, the only reason why we would do any of this is to see Jesus made known and lifted up and glorified in the Bay Area. God has, the word tells us that God has set the, set the boundaries for when and where we live. Did you know that? None of us were born by chance, that this is, this is the time that God has put us in this place. And so if that is true, and it is, then that means that this is the time and place that he wants to use us to further his name in this place. And some of you might be, I, I was asked to speak about this very briefly. Some of you might be wondering, well, what's campusing all about? Uh, it sounds, sounds kind of weird, like you're gonna, we're going to watch a sermon every Sunday. And I would say that, I, so I'm a part of the Hayward campus, that's my main campus, and I've been a part of that campus ever since the beginning, um, and, and let's, can we just be truthful and honest? Seeing a live preacher is always more engaging than watching a screen. Can we just be honest for a second? Nobody goes, man, I can't wait to get to church to watch a screen. Let's go. Like, like nobody, nobody thinks that, right? Of course, Seeing it live and seeing the preacher there and seeing his spit come out of his mouth and seeing him wipe away the sweat off his brow because he knows he's handling God's word, not his word, right? Like that's, there's, that's always a more engaging experience. 
I will say this, that the upside of having the sermon come in is everyone in the church, the whole church, all hears what God has for that church through one message. Because even if you have two brothers who are, are bringing a word and, it is, and they love each other and, they, and they're, they're in sync with one another, it's going to be different. And so there's a unification from the word that comes from just one voice. Uh, it also frees up the ministry team to, if, uh, if, if people aren't preparing for a sermon all week, guess what they get to do? More shepherding. More shepherding more training, more love, more in the community. And so, and there's more that we could say about this. I'll, I'll just say this. I, having been a part of the Hayward campus now for the last two and a half years, I am an observer and experiencing and a witness to how God works within that way of doing campus ministry. And I have no doubt that God will also do a great work here in Oakland. And so we just, and we're, we'll pray and ask the Lord to do that. Amen? Because it's his work, it's not ours. It's his work, not ours. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them up to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, and if you're new to the Bible, new to the Bible, you're going to go about three quarters, a little more than three quarters of the way through the entire Bible. Hebrews is probably about two-thirds of the way through the New Testament. And I'm going to ask, I don't know if you do this here, but I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of God's word we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Oh, I love that sound. I love that. That's great. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. Therefore, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works." Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word for us today, and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. What I want to share with you this morning really is the core of what the church, and not resonate, I mean the church, what God's people, what the core of it is all about. You know, we talk about church visions and missions and campaigns and things of that nature, but at the core of every single church, the core of every body, local body of believers, is what Jesus commanded his disciples to go and do in Matthew 28. And what was that? Do you remember? I know you weren't there, but you've read it, maybe. What, what did he command them to go and do? To go and make disciples. The vision and mission of every single church is to go and make disciples. 
That, that is what we all are to be about. Now, of course, that's going to look different in every local body, but still, at the core, that's what God has called us to do, to go and make disciples. The Bible calls this process of someone be, becoming and being and growing as a disciple, very simple word, discipleship. And, and I think Hebrews 10, in this passage that we've just read, I think it gives us a beautiful picture of how this works itself out, so much so that I, I, I want to take it apart a little bit this morning and show you where there is not just vision but also hope for what I believe God has for us as his people moving forward. And so what we're going to look at this morning in terms of discipleship is the means for discipleship, the practice of discipleship, and then finally the reason for discipleship. Let's look first at the means Discipleship, again, is about growing in faith and obedience to God. It's, it's linked and it's part of our sanctification, which is a big Bible theology word of the process of becoming more and more holy. Our lives as Christians is on a path. It's on a journey that we don't just stay. God doesn't just save us and like, okay, you're done. Just sit there until you die or I come back. That God actually saves us to bring us into the best version of ourselves, and not the best version of you so that you can be famous and you can be, you can be wealthy and you can be happy, but God, that version of you is God bringing you to become like his son. That the process of discipleship is taking us from our fallen state. We say yes to Jesus because he's illuminated our hearts and illuminated our eyes. And then he brings us on a process to, be, to make us more and more like Jesus. That is discipleship. The life of Christ is often described as the way of Jesus, a life that desires to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus would do if he were me. So uh, that doesn't mean, so what that means is if you, uh, to, be, to be with Jesus is specifically spending time with him in the word and in prayer and spiritual practices, and becoming like Jesus is, is actually the, becoming the hands and feet to, of the person of Jesus to other people, and doing the things that he would do if he were us. So think about your job. Think about what you do in your profession. Say you're a plumber. How would Jesus be a plumber in your profession? How would Jesus make decisions with clients, with money, with, uh, with a pipe that you cannot fix, with getting a call late at night? Like how, how would Jesus go about that? Discipleship is a journey of us dying to ourselves and taking on the life of Christ so that we might reflect him. Not reflect ourselves, but reflect him. One of the things that you'll hear said a lot at Resonate is that we believe that Jesus uh, is more attuned and focused on our journey of discipleship than the end goal. Does that make sense? So that Jesus, Jesus is more attuned and focused on the journey of us becoming more like him than the end goal, the end process, the end result. Because it's along the journey, it's along the journey where we are confessing sin to him, we're calling out to him, we're praying to him, we are saying, take this sin, take this flesh thing away from me. So, how do we do that? Well, uh, what we'll see in the text here is uh, a number of different ways that we grow, but here's, here's what it looks like. Uh, one of the primary ways that we grow as disciples is through robust community. Robust community. 
Uh, and the three things are, are uh, put here in the text. Number one is diversity. Number two is unity. And number three is growth. Now, what do I mean by diversity? Well, if you look at the passage, you'll notice quickly uh, that a lot of people miss what they read in the New Testament. Uh, in this passage, um, the, the Bible does not, I'll say it like this, that the, the life of Christ and the life of a believer in the Bible is more often described in the plural you than in the singular you. Do you realize that? That when God speaks to his people, that when Paul is giving instruction to different churches, it is almost always to the gathered body. If you're from Texas, the you all. I didn't even say it right. Dang it. Thank you. It's the y'all, right? When you read the scriptures, the the writers of the scriptures, and God himself is speaking to y'all, not you, singular. And what happens is we, at times, can become, and this is from our culture, this is from Western culture, we can so individualize and personalize our faith that we are attuned to, well, what is God saying to me? What does he want me to do? And those aren't bad questions. Just calm down. Those, are, those aren't bad questions. But how often do we ask the question, realistically, not just in a church meeting, not just in, in but how often are we saying, God, what, are you, what do you have for all of us here? Because we are the people of God. Now, one of the things that was interesting about the early church was it broke down so many walls of uh, homogeny. And so what you saw, what blew away the Romans and blew away uh, the Jews in the early church was how diverse the church was. Because you had poor people, you had rich people, you had Jews and Greeks, you had prostitutes, you had business owners, you had people from every single walk of life all come together. Now, why is that? Why is that? Because the gospel is not intended for one type of person. The gospel is not intended for just one uh, branch of the community. Now, what often happens in a lot of evangelical churches is we will, we will be totally cool and excited about racial diversity in our churches. And that's not a problem at all. But what ends up being a harder barrier to cross is economic diversity. And more so, we are seeing more and more evangelical churches, both established and church plants, are now grouping more by economic factors and not necess- and, uh, and uh, racial doors. Like, we've broken those down. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying that we don't have ways to go. But we're clustering by economic similarity more so than, uh, than anything else. Go to, the, go to the average evangelical church in America, and it, you, might have a, you might have great ethnic and racial and cultural differences, but if you look at it economically, my point is this. I'm going off on a little tangent here, but my point is this. I do that. Um, the, the, the early church and the church of Jesus Christ is not meant for one kind of person. And everyone should be able to come and worship uh, any time. Anyone should be able to come to our prayer meetings. Anyone should be able to come to our, our worship gatherings or our small groups because the church is meant to be diverse. When we say diversity is our strength, we're not saying that as some token uh, phrase 
to impress people and to impress the world. We're saying that no, it's a strength because God saves all people and God loves all people. The second aspect of the church is not just diversity, but unity. Because diversity can't just be the end goal, because we can't just all say, well, we're all different, and that's what's great. There has to be something that unites all of us. See, we can all come from different backgrounds, but now we're all united under one banner, namely one person, one work, and that's Jesus Christ. One of the things that is... One of the things that is so true, I mean, look, what, look at what the writer says here. He says, in verse 21, he says, Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. For Christians, though we may be different in countless ways, in different ways, it is our unity in Christ that matters most in our gatherings. It is, our, it is the fact that our unity in Christ solidifies us. It cements us. And I would even say this, that what we have in Jesus goes deeper than our familial bonds. It goes deeper than any experiences that we might have with other people. I mean, so, so Nee and the boys came to men's retreat, right? And here's what they easily could have done, just kind of held back. And, and we're just in the background, and we're just there. And, but what, what happened? What happened? Yeah, right? What happened was the Spirit of Christ roused us all up, and it was like we were all best friends. It was like we had known each other for years. Now, that doesn't happen through a sports team. That doesn't happen because of shared affinity or we went through similar experiences. That happens because the blood of Christ unites us more than anything else. And so I can walk in on a Sunday morning, and I've met four of you in my life, and I can find bonds of fellowship and love in a greater way. I bumped into David, right? Yeah, we bumped into each other. He tried to knock me over when I came into the church uh, like about an hour ago, and uh, we like started talking like we had known each other for months. How does that happen? only because we share in our redemption in the, through the blood of Jesus. That's the only way that that can happen. And the world is looking at us like, how are you guys all on the same page? It's not because we've done anything, it's because of what Christ has done in us. So you see diversity, you see unity, but you also see growth. And verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now we'll talk more about what this means in a moment, but let's just say this, that that in the church of Jesus Christ, uh, one of the logical outcomes is growth. Now, I don't necessarily mean numerical growth, although that is a sign, but within the church, we are stirring one another up. We are, we are, uh, the desire is for us to grow, and growth is letting go and overcoming sin. Growth is saying, you know what, I am so uh, inward focused that that, that's not what God's made me to be. God, for the first time in my life, would you open my eyes, help me get out of my own skin and, and uh, boundaries so that I might be an expression and aroma of Christ to the world? God, would you teach me, would you push me out of my comfort zone to, to be generous, to meet people, to maybe serve in a way that I've never have before? 
See, one of, the, one of the realities of this robust community is that not only are you growing and you growing, but we are growing. And when you come into on a Sunday morning and you share how God worked in your life and how God convicted you of sin and you were praying and you were fasting and you believe that God has given you victory in your life, we celebrate just as hard as you do. Because a victory for you, a moment of growth for you, is a moment of growth for all of us. We share in that. You see how the, the, this, this robust community is essential to our discipleship. And one of, the, one of the saddest things that exists is the mentality of, I don't need the church to be a strong Christian. I don't need others. I can run this play on my own. And I would say, if that, when, that, when that thought goes into someone's mind, what they are trying to convince themselves of is that God's vision for his people is not as good as their vision for his people. Now, there are seasons of life where we need to break away and go on a solo journey with God. Like, that happens. But those are exceptions to the rule, you dig? Those, are, those, are, those things happen, but they're not the, the regular rhythm of God's people. God's people, not God's person, right? And so uh, this robust community is absolutely essential. As human beings, we uh, have this desire to, to be tribalistic, and our default is to to group with people who look and speak and act and think like us, and yet the church has this great moment in, in our city, in our area, in our time, to show a different way, to show a more beautiful way, that what unites us is not something outside of ourselves, but it's Christ who lives inside of us. So that's the means by discipleship, that this, this community that God weaves together is so important. But how about second, the practice, the practice of discipleship. What I mean by this is simply what does discipleship look like when this robust community comes together? And the author actually gives us five different characteristics of what this community looks like. Let's look at verse 24. The writer says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I have been in church long enough where I have heard pastors Use, ju- use these verses and only focus on the part that says uh, not neglecting to meet one another and then shaming everybody for not going to church. And there's so much, first of all, that's not the way, and second of all, there's so much more here in this passage to understand. Look, look at this. First he says to consider. And what does the author mean by consider? Well, the original Greek word uh, of this word consider meant to being attentive and providing continuous care. And so the exhortation here that the writer gives is to take careful note of other people's spiritual welfare. Right? So we've already kind of said this, but when you come into the gathering, and whether, whether it's Sunday morning or in your small group, like there is this attentiveness to the spiritual needs of those around you. So I'm not just thinking about myself, which, by the way, that's my natural default. I don't know about you, but that's my default, is to only think about myself. 
But what the writer of Hebrews says is to consider. When you enter the room, when you enter the building, when you enter the space of this robust community, when you're in conversation, when you're having coffee, when you're at Christmas dinner, whatever it is to consider what are the spiritual needs of my brother or sister that is right in front of me. What, what will it take? What will it take for them to thrive? What will it take them to become alive? The connotation is that this is something, something that's happening within the community of discipleship. If you think about it this way, a parent will consider the needs of his or her child. A principal will give consideration to the needs of students and teachers. A nurse will give careful consideration to the medical needs of a patient. And the point here is that the, the, the community of Christ, as individuals and as a body, we are, we are invited to consider the needs of others and to say, how can, I, how can I bless you? How can I take care of you? So the first is to consider. The second is to stir up. Now, the Greek word, which I'm not going to give you like the Greek for all of these. I'm just nerding out momentarily, and then I'll probably stop right here. But it's a Greek word, parazumos, which means to incite or stimulate, which sounds great. That's good, right? You know, stimulate someone into good works, you know, get them going, give a little pep talk, right? But one of the uh, realities of this word is not necessarily uh, in a positive way, the way it sounds, but it's actually a word like irritation. Irritation. And the writer is saying to irritate, <laughs> sounds funny, but it says to irritate uh, those around you. What do you mean by that? Well, many of us have been in Christian community for long enough to know that it's not all, it's not all rainbows and bunnies within like the Christian community, right? Like sometimes you gotta, sometimes you gotta dig deep and scratch the surface a little bit and you're like, oh, I'm just scratching the surface. And at first you're like, oh, that feels good, a little scratchy scratch. And then you start scratching double, and then you're like scratching more, and you're like, okay, we're not just doing the surface thing here. I mean, one of the most beautiful things about the people of God is God gives us an invitation to lovingly hurt one another. I'll explain. I'll feed you baby birds, okay? Just stay with me. It is never a fun thing to confront someone in their sin. It is never a painless ordeal to rebuke a brother or a sister. It hurts, doesn't it? Because it hurts, the obvious one is if you're the one being rebuked, which is often me, if you're the one being rebuked, it's like, oh, don't do that. Don't, don't tell me to, don't tell me I need to pay attention to my sin. Don't point out where I'm being neglectful or I'm being a hypocrite. Don't do that. How dare you? How dare you? Like that, that hurts. But it's also painful on the other side because, and many of us know this, and maybe even some of us have experienced this, you're taking a giant risk. And I won't ask you to raise your hand because that might be too painful. But how many of us have been in a situation where we have lovingly rebuked a brother or a sister in Christ 
and it's been rejected, and the relationship has suffered. I mean, it, it hurts. And yet, what is the writer of Hebrews commanding us to do? To stir up, to irritate. Because the community is so important, because the intimacy is so important, there are times when we have to do that. Proverbs 15.32 says, Correction, it's called calling, calling out the error of a brother or a sister's behavior and showing them a godly way to proceed. You can think about rebuke in Matthew 8, pointing out the sin of a brother, or even, ready, this one, I know you may not believe me, but what about judgment? Do you know the Bible in 1 Corinthians 5 says that we are to judge our brothers and sisters in Christ? I know we love Matthew 7, 7, thou shalt not judge, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 to pronounce judgment on a brother or a sister who, in Christ, not the world, but in Christ, who is not receiving the rebuke of the community. And it says to cast them out in the hopes that their separation will cause them to repent. That's your Bible. Not harsh, but, it's, but what is it for? See, it's for the good of that person and the community. That the intimacy and the bond of the community is so important that we go to these kinds of lengths and measures. Let's talk about something happy. Love and good works. That's another characteristic of discipleship, the practice. In the presence and practice of considering and stirring one another up, the result is a practice of love and good works. To love is one of the greatest virtues in the Christian life. 1 John 4, 7, and 8, which is a song, if you go back old enough in your uh, Sunday school years, if you're that old, anybody know that song? 1 John 4, 7, nope, sorry, that's just me. No? Okay. I will not sing it later. States that God is love, and thus when we show love, when we give love and act out love towards others, we are demonstrating and practicing the very person of God. And this is part of the practice of discipleship within this robust community. Now, as far as good works go, let's give some clarification, because we're not talking about you doing good works to, imp to impress God or to be accepted by God. God already accepts you as his child. Nothing that you can do will impress God. No good works of ours can impress God. But... That does not say, that does not, what that doesn't mean, though, is that now we don't have good works to do. In fact, Ephesians 2, 10 says that God saved us for good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. And part of the robust community that leads to discipleship is us being stirred up to perform these good works, to serve one another. Moving quickly here. Number four, meeting regularly. Now, this might be the most self-evident, but in case you're wondering, the Christian life was never meant to be a solitary endeavor. We've already talked about that. The Bible speaks dramatically more about experiencing God in community, and one of the reasons for that is because every single person here, because we're all different, because we're all created differently, we've had different experiences, that means that I have something to learn and uh, benefit from your experience in Christ that I can't have or don't have because I haven't lived your life. So for instance, a person who has 
who has maybe wrestled with a certain kind of uh, lack of faith in the past, maybe did not walk in trust, maybe, I'll give you a, a good example, maybe somebody who was not walking in faith in, in their finances and uh, hoarded their money or spent their money or was never generous, and now God's freed them from that, God has transformed that person's life, that person has a story to tell about the faithfulness and the providence of God, right? That person has something to say about, about generosity and about how God provides and how God breaks the idol of money in your life that I need to listen to because I didn't have that experience. You dig what I'm saying? I mean, Part of one of the beautiful things is we experience more robustness of who God is because we're in community. And the writer of, of, of Hebrews is saying, is basically teaching us that we will, we will experience more of God as a community rather than on a solo journey. C.S. Lewis actually said this, that Christ works on us through each other. That is why the church, the whole body of Christians, showing him to one another is so important. Finally, encouragement. Again, it may seem obvious, but one of the most important practices of discipleship is to offer encouragement to one another, to build them up. And I'll just say this, it's being each other's cheerleader. It is rooting for our brothers and sisters, whether in a larger community or in a smaller community. It's rooting for them and being excited for them whenever God is doing something in their life. You know, it is a difficult practice to rejoice. Let's just be honest here. It is a difficult practice to rejoice when you've been praying and asking God to work in your life, to change your circumstances, to give you a pathway or whatever it is, and, and you've been earnest in prayer and you're just asking faithfully, and then God does that work in someone else's life, and you're like, <laughs> wait, wait, whoa. And it is, a, it is an act of faith and a movement of the Holy Spirit to celebrate what God's done in that person's life. Isn't it? Because I was just praying for that. I was praying for that. You did it in my brother's life. You did it in my sister's life. God, you're at work. And, and the fact that you haven't said yes to me means you're saying, don't worry. You're okay. I'm enough. I'll take care of you in the way that I'm going to take care of you. But I've taken care of this brother or sister in this way. And so I want you to be excited that I'm at work. Okay. See, building up one another is about, about or encouragement is about building each other up, building courage and strength into their life, seeing them as an important piece of the community. Or encouragement is not merely saying good job. It's saying whatever I need to do in order to help you, strengthen you, or show you the beauty and the worthiness of Christ, I'll do it. Discipleship involves all of these things. It takes over the whole being of a person. It takes over the whole being of relationship, the community of believers. Discipleship is not, again, not just about you and your personal journey, but it is about our journey in Christ. It envelops the entire life of the church. It's not just a side gig. It's not just a program. It's actually, it's actually what, what the entire church is all about, making of disciples. And if we are not making disciples, if the church is not making disciples and training up disciples and leading disciples to grow in their faith, then the church is missing 
its primary purpose of existence. So let me tell you the reason for discipleship. Or maybe a better way to say this would be the goal, the goal of discipleship. The goal of discipleship is to see Jesus for who he is. Look at verse 19. To see Jesus for who he is. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. Now I'll stop there. What in the heck is going on here? What is the author talking about? What is the holy place? The, what the writer is talking about here is the holy place, the holy of holies, known to the Jewish people, the Jew, primary Jewish audience that's hearing or reading the book of Hebrews. And so when, they, when the writer says the holy place, they immediately think of the temple and the holy of holies. This is where God's presence would rest. In Old Testament times, this is where God's presence would be. And once a year, once a year, the high priest would go through, go, he was the only one, the high priest was the only one allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And it was once a year. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and he would go and make sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of Israel. And he could not just stroll in. The high priest had to go through his own cleansing ritual in order to go into the Holy of Holies. And there was incense burning in the Holy of Holies. And you know why? Because symbolically, the smoke from the incense would even then create a barrier between the presence of God and the high priest. There was still this barrier. And the high priest, when he would go in there, they would often tie a rope around his ankle. You want to know why? Because God's presence was so holy that any sinner in God's presence would die. That's why Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, he sees God and he's like, I'm done for. I'm, I'm dead. There's God. I'm dead. Right? And so they would tie a rope around the high priest because just in case it all didn't go right, they could drag him out. You laugh, but they did that because we're not messing around here. Because the holiness of God is not something that we mess around with. And, 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 but what does the writer of Hebrews say? Therefore, since we have what? Confidence. Confidence to what? Enter the holy places. Whereas before, like, okay, I'm going in, avert your eyes. And everyone would turn around. They'd wait for the plop, right? Now it says what? God has made a way for us to have access to him. How? How? By the blood of goats? By the blood of bulls? By the blood of you and me? By the blood of Jesus. Where Jesus makes a way for us to have access to the Holy place of God. And here's why. From the very beginning, God has called people to himself. 
God, from the very beginning, God has called, called people, called sinners to himself. Do you remember in Genesis 3? Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are hiding. And what does God do? He's looking for them to call them back to himself. Remember Noah. I mean, humanity has hit almost rock bottom. And God says, I'm going to save this family so that I can call humanity back to myself. Genesis 11, the light of the knowledge of God has almost completely gone out in the world. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and says, here, start walking. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And whoever blesses you, I will bless all your descendants after you. I'm starting something brand new through you, Abraham. God has always been calling people to himself. And now by the blood of Jesus, now by his sacrifice, we have access, complete and total access, that says we can go with confidence to the presence of God. Jesus not only presided over the atonement for our sins, he was the atonement for our sins. He was the sacrifice. All the years, all the years leading up to the, the sacrifice of Jesus, all the, my daughter just asked this question the other day. She said, how did people back then get saved? And I said, well, salvation has always been by grace through faith. And so everyone before Jesus God said, here, sacrifice these animals and it will atone for sin. And what did the people have to do? They had to believe that that was the means for their salvation, for their forgiveness. It wasn't the actual slaughtering, oh, you you killed an animal? Great, now you're good. It was, okay, God, you said this is what we're supposed to do, so we're just going to go along with it and just believe you because by faith we're going to trust that that's how we're going to receive grace from you. Jesus Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, and now we sit and we say, God, this is the way that we've, we have salvation. We believe that you've provided Jesus for our salvation. Okay, that is the means by which you will show us grace. Second, not only is discipleship a means for us to see who Jesus is, it's a means for us to become like Jesus. Look at verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean and from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What do these verses have to do with becoming like Jesus? I'm glad you asked. The words, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, this speaks to the Levitical ceremonies with reference to the preparation for the priests. And so the priests would be sprinkled with the blood. They would be washed clean. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is, you've been sprinkled and you've been washed clean. God is making you into a priest like Jesus. The writer of 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 2, Peter talks about how we are a royal priesthood, that we have been given the excellencies of who God is, and now we, like Jesus, get to dispense the glories of God through other people. In, in the writer of Hebrews here is saying, look, Jesus, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect one who is clean. Jesus has made you clean, and just like Jesus, you now carry the very knowledge and, and understanding of God to the people around you. We have that opportunity to be like Jesus to each other. Before we were saved, our best hope 
We put our hope in our own righteousness and our own self. Tim Keller puts it this way. The righteousness of self is like wearing a suit that's two to three sizes too small. You can get it on, but it's restrictive. You pretend that you look good, but you don't, and it doesn't fit, and eventually as you're moving around, it rips. But when you become a Christian, you no longer wear your righteousness. You put on the righteousness of Christ, and it's like a suit that fits well, and there's always room to grow. Isn't that beautiful? Our righteousness is like this constrictive, restrictive thing that is on us, and it's going to rip. It's going to rip. Eventually, it's, you're going to just bend down and pick up a pencil, and you know what's going to happen. But the righteousness of Christ is like a suit that fits perfectly and always room to grow. Finally, discipleship teaches us how to be on mission with Jesus. And I'll make this quick because we've already covered it. But in verse 24, it says, let us consider how to stir one another up to, towards love and good works. And the reality and salvation of Jesus changes our perspective on life itself. Where before we were only focused on ourselves, now we've been invited and free to focus on others. And Jesus, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, all the more as we see the day drawing near. This day the author is speaking about is the coming of Jesus. The end, when God will make all good things, when he will un, make all the sad things untrue, that he will right all of the wrongs. And the fact that, it, that the writer of Hebrews puts it here tells us two things. One, there's a countdown. It's coming. The day of Jesus is coming. And he's redeemed us so that we can be a part of redeeming others. That we have that opportunity. Discipleship teaches us that God has gifted us and blessed us to be a part of the mission of God. It teaches us that because Jesus lives within us, we have the opportunity to live out what we've experienced towards others. I want you to think about the state of the world today. I want you to think about all of the chaos and tumultuous things that are happening all over the world. It's enough to bring great sadness, depression, anger. And consider this, the Holy Spirit, in those moments, the Holy Spirit gives, gifts you peace and redirects your mind to the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Now I want you to think about your neighbors and your coworkers who don't have that. I believe that we are walking around people who are in incredible despair and hopelessness. And God has not saved us simply for ourselves. God is discipling us so that we might continue to be and become a people who bring the good news of Jesus Christ, who bring a sense of hope to a world that desperately needs to hear it. And I'll just close with this. I don't want to be a part of any other church that doesn't do that. If we're not, if we're not, if the mission is not to make disciples, if the mission is not to bring a sense of hope into the world, then I don't want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of what God is doing. I want to be a part of God redeeming this world because there's nothing more important than that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this morning. I thank you that your word is good, that it remains forever, that no matter what happens in this life, no matter what we experience, 
no matter what hurts or pains we go through, no matter what happens in the world, your word is good and true and, and lasts forever. And there's nothing, there's nothing great or special about us. We're not clever. We're not, we're not so gifted that we think we can go through this world. We desperately need you. And I confess to you, Lord, how often, there's so many times where I pretend that I'm, gonna, that I'm best flying solo, that I'm best just figuring things out on my own. And I confess that to you, Lord, and, and I, I want to receive the gift of the church, the gift of discipleship within a robust community, and I believe many of my friends here do as well. So, God, would you, would you transform our hearts so that we would see just how beautiful not only the gospel is, but how the gospel informs and leads us to a sense of discipleship, that we would desire to grow more and more to become like you. God, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, uh, empower this endeavor. We pray all this in Jesus' name.